you ever just known that you were supposed to do something? And I don't mean just known that you're supposed to eat some ice cream. No, I, I'm thinking like, you just know you're supposed to stop and help that person on the side of the road. That, that you're, you're, you just know you're supposed to start that business. Like, you somehow just know, even though no one told you, you didn't read it in a book, you didn't watch a how-to video on YouTube, somehow you just know, I'm supposed to do this. I've had numerous times like that in my life. For instance, when I was in fourth grade, the kids were teasing me, saying, Aaron, you could never wrestle. And as soon as they said it, somehow inside, I just know, I'm supposed to do that. Or summer after fifth grade, I, my church was doing a, a baptism and, and picnic out at a farm, and I thought baptism sounded weird, and so we just went, had the, the, the picnic, and all of a sudden, I start seeing these people baptized, and I suddenly realize inside, I'm supposed to do that. Like, I had no change of clothes, we brought no towel, but I walked over to my parents who happened to be here today, and I was like, I I'm supposed to go do that. And they're looking at me like, no, we asked you ahead of time, you said no. And it, I, I don't know if I threw a temper tantrum, but like, no, I'm supposed to do this because I just knew. I, I could go on. Like, I just knew I was supposed to transfer to this one particular college. I just knew that, that I was supposed to, uh, well, for instance, when we had uh, Salem, our third, uh, we just knew we were supposed to have one more. And as soon as Zion, our fourth, came along, we, we knew we were done. And, and, and when it came to planting a church, I, no one told me, Aaron, you know, you should think about doing this. There was just this moment where I felt God saying, here's what I want you to do. Now, you might look at me and think, well, Aaron, you just must be highly intuitive. I, I don't feel really all that intuitive. Like, I get a lot of things wrong in life. A lot. Of an embarrassing amount. Or maybe you're thinking, well, Aaron, you're a pastor. Like, you, you have this, like, close relationship with God. He, he tells you what to do. i I won't deny, there have been times in my life where I've heard the voice of God, but those have been very, very rare. Very precious moments, but very rare. It's not like every day I feel like God's saying, Aaron, you should eat this today, you should wear that. And, and, and two, even the things I've chosen to do, it's not like I've been wildly successful at them. It, it, it's not like I was a great wrestler. Right? When I transferred schools, I didn't suddenly just start getting a 4.0. And, and planting a church, like if you were to rank church planters, I don't even know if I'd crack the top half. Like, even though there were risks involved, I didn't know if it would work, I may not even be that great at it, somehow I just knew I'm supposed to do that. Now, maybe you've never had a moment like that. I just want you to know that's okay. I, I don't think you have to have moments like that. In fact, I think most people don't. So if you haven't had a moment like that, you're not a failure. And if you have had a moment like that, you're not somehow better than everyone else. It's just what God chose to do in your life. The reason I bring this up today is because we start a new series in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to study one chapter every single Sunday. And this week in chapter one, we are going to see Nehemiah, the lead character, just know He's supposed to do something. But my goal isn't to try to get you to somehow learn the knack for intuitive decision-making. 
Instead, I want you to notice what Nehemiah does when he suddenly has this sense, this burden, this vision for what he's to do with his life. And my hope is that as you see what he, how he responds, it will help you respond in a similar way, whether you have that moment or not. So if you brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you're a first-time guest with us and did not bring a Bible, don't worry about it. We're going to put the scripture on the screen so you can read right along with us. But if you do happen to have a Bible on your phone, feel free to pull that out. No one's going to accuse you of going to Facebook or Instagram or anywhere else. We're going to read the Bible together today. If you don't have a Bible, download one to your phone. Or if you want to go old school and have a paper Bible, we've got uh, Bibles out on our resource table. We've got two different translations. We'd love to just give one of those to you. That would be our gift to you. Um, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah these next six weeks. Uh, so as we get ready to launch this new series and uh, begin today, uh, let us pray. So Heavenly Father, uh, as we get ready to come to your holy scriptures, uh, I pray that you would take all the, the time and energy and effort I've put into this sermon and you would now make it yours. As we just sang, God, I, I now give you everything and nothing less. Would you do what you need to do because these are your people. You know their names, you know their stories, you know their victories, and you know their failures. And you love them deeply and passionately. So God, I pray that you would do what only you can do. That you would take the words of one man, myself, and somehow make it penetrate the hearts and lives of many people. Because there are different places spiritually. There are different places emotionally. Some are doing great. Some are doing awful. I pray, Father, that you would do something tremendous for them and for your glory. So God, teach us now through the book of Nehemiah. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. To be... Uh, Completely open and transparent, uh, we are not just kicking off a series in Nehemiah. Uh, we are also kicking off today a capital campaign that we're calling Building Lives. Maybe you noticed the poster and the table when you walked in. You're seeing the slide up on the screen. If you're part of the Riverwood family, you, maybe you've heard a little bit about this. But today we kick off a capital campaign. Which means, if you're a first-time guest and you're anything like me, you're probably thinking to yourself, oh, great. I show up at church, and they're going to talk about money. My Riverwood family knows this. I've, I've shared this before. But um, I, I'm growing in this area of talking about money in church. I have, in the past, kind of pulled back from it. Because I've never wanted someone to think what we want from them is their money. Really, what I want for you is for you to follow Jesus. That's what matters to me. Whether you give your money or not. Now, yes, part of following Jesus includes generosity. I mean, Jesus gave his entire life. But for us, it's not about just trying to get money from you. It's trying to help you to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. We, to try to help people do this, we've developed our own little pathway. Gather, grow, give, go. We gather together in worship. We grow together spiritually through a two-handed approach. We grow through personal spiritual disciplines, so things like Bible reading, so that's why we have Bibles available for anyone who needs one. Prayer, fasting, journaling, whatever it needs to help you grow personally, spiritually, like in, in your own. But then also the second hand is through relationships. So that's why we offer growth groups or we encourage people like at work or at school, partner up with someone and just get together to read the scriptures and pray for one another. Help one another grow. So we take this two-handed approach to spiritual growth. Then we also want to give. 
But we don't just talk about giving of your finances. We talk about giving of your fist. Your finances, your influence, your skills, and your time. In other words, it's the song we just sang, giving God everything and nothing less. So we open up our hands, we open our fists, and we give these things to God. But then ultimately what we want is to see people go, to go and be a blessing. And when they go to their school, to their neighborhood, to their work, they go and live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. But in order for us to begin that pathway, we need a place to gather. Riverwood started on Easter Sunday, 2014. Since that time, we have met in a lot of different locations. As you can see by the pictures, we've met in schools, we've met in government buildings, we've met at the Veterans Post, we've met at the fairgrounds, we've met outside. We've kind of been all over the place. And all of those places, except for the fairgrounds, were set up and tear down. So there were people who loved our community enough to get up early to go in and help set up the chairs, to set up the sound systems, to set up lights, so that we could gather together and worship Jesus and learn more about what it means to find him and follow him. Well, at, when we realized the fairgrounds was not a long-term solution for us, we started realizing it's time for us to grow up as a baby church and to find a more permanent location. So the search was on. We eventually found this building here, and the owners agreed to give us a three-year lease with the option at the end of the three years to sign another three-year lease or to purchase the building. So we brought this to our Riverwood partners in January of 2020, and they all voted, yes, let's do this, not knowing in two months a pandemic would hit our world. So we, in February, did a small little capital campaign so we could remodel this place, and now we're here. Well, our lease ends next year. Do we sign another lease, or do we begin to attempt to purchase it? So again, our elder team and our finance team brought it before our Riverwood partners, and they voted in January of this year, yes, let's, uh, let's attempt to purchase it. If you want to know the details, there's brochures out there uh, on the table. You can pick one of those up. I won't take the time to go through all of that. But the long story short is we need to raise $100,000 for a down payment. The good news is we've been given a $50,000 matching grant. So we're halfway there. But that means we have to have the other $50,000 raised. And so that's why we're having to hold a capital campaign. Um, but the reason we're not just, I'm not just coming up here saying, okay, guys, we want to buy the building. Give us your money. Let's get this thing done. The reason we're taking time on Sundays to talk about it, the reason we're creating growth group guides and have our growth groups discuss this, the, the reason we put out a brochure is because we want this to be done well and done right, but I also believe it's part of our spiritual growth as a church. I believe that God has some very significant days ahead for us. To get us ready for those days, he's going to be preparing us, and I think this is part of that preparation. And so I don't want to cheat us out of that preparation just kind of keep this thing as a side thing. Instead, I want to bring it front and center and for us to consider together what might God want to be doing through us as a church as a whole, but also for you as an individual. Now, as we get going, I want to make a, a slight disclaimer. It has become trendy for churches to use the book of Nehemiah when they do a capital campaign. In fact, I had one person who found out what we were planning to do, and they were like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. No. I want you to know, we're not doing this because it's the latest fad. 
We're not doing this to try to somehow justify and spiritualize this idea of giving money for a building. In fact, I do not believe that God wrote the book of Nehemiah to be a template for the 21st century American church on how to get people to give money to buy buildings. I believe that God embedded truths and principles into Nehemiah that we need to learn from that can help us through this process. But I also believe there's truths and principles in the book of Nehemiah that God has for you personally. You see, I think this journey we're going to go on is going to be kind of a two-part. It's going to be a journey we go on together as a church family, but it's also going to be a journey that you go on individually. Because I think through the book of Nehemiah, some of you are going to hear from God, and it is going to change your life. Because as we're going to see in Nehemiah, God changed Nehemiah. So let's get ready to dive in. If your Bible is open there, we are going to read the first four verses, Nehemiah 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who'd survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This past Thursday in our weekly email, uh, we included a link to a Bible Project uh, video. If you took the time to uh, watch that video, you learned that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra comes right before Nehemiah, that these two books used to be one. It is believed that Ezra wrote these two books, that when he wrote the portion known as Nehemiah, he talked with Nehemiah, interviewed him, learned all of his stories, and then captured that for you know, posterior's sake. And so he, they used to be together. But when the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the, what we call the Old Testament, the, the uh, Jews would just call their scripture, when the Septuagint, the Greek translation came out, the two books were separated. All right? So we've got to talk a little bit about Ezra to help set the stage for Nehemiah. Babylon was the mighty empire that God used to invade Israel. Israel had wandered away from God in their hearts. They were being disobedient. And God had been warning them for centuries. If you don't return to me, I'm going to send a nation who's going to take you into exile. Well, the people continued to be rebellious against God. So he allowed the Babylonians to come in and invade and defeat Israel. And they utterly destroyed the city. They tore down the temple, the altar, the walls. The city was in ruins. And three different times, they took a group of Jews into exile. There were these three different deportations. But then, I don't know, I think it was like 70, 80 years later, Persia ends up invading Babylon and defeats them. The first king of Persia was a guy by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus feels like God is moving him. You can read this in Ezra 1. He feels like God moves him to allow a remnant of these Jewish people to go back to Israel and to rebuild the temple. 
And so in Ezra, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, you see a guy by the name of Zerubbabel and another guy, Joshua, lead the people back, uh, uh, some of the people, back to Israel, and they do. They read the altar. But then in chapter 4, they begin to try to rebuild the walls. Right? Things are going really, really well. So we're reestablished in the city. So they begin to try to rebuild the walls. But Cyrus has died, and another king has come in, a guy by the name of Xerxes. Well, some of the enemies of Israel write back to Persia saying, you don't know this. They're trying to rebuild and reestablish Jerusalem. Israel used to be this mighty nation. You do not want to allow them to get this reestablished. So Xerxes passes a command, an edict, saying, then all work must stop. And sure enough, it stops. And that's how it remains for the next, I think, like 14 years. Now, Xerxes dies. A new king comes in, Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah is working as the cupbearer to the king. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute. So Artaxerxes is, is now a, a new king's in place. And uh, uh, sorry, I'm losing my, my place. And that's when then Hananiah, the uh, brother of Nehemiah, comes back. Now, we don't know why Hananiah was in Israel. Maybe he was actually holds a government position uh, for uh, Persia, and he's on a like uh, emissary, you know, fact-finding. We don't know why. Maybe he was just going on vacation. All we know is he and a group of guys have come back from Judah, and they've given this report. And Nehemiah comes up to his brother and goes, how are they? How are the people doing? How, how's the city? See, Nehemiah wants to know because he is a Jew. He identifies with his people and with their city, even though he's never been there. You see, at this point, as we come into the book of Nehemiah, they've now been in exile for over 70 years. He's probably, one scholar I read said that he was probably around uh, 40. That means he was born in Babylon. He's never been there. And yet, he wants to know, how's it going? Right, right now, as many of you know, Russia invaded the Ukraine. Here in America, there are people who are Ukrainian by background. Maybe they still speak Ukrainian in, in the home. They've got a Ukrainian flag up. They eat Ukrainian food. But yet, they're American. They speak English. They watch our same TV shows. They hold a job. But what's happening over there probably is affecting them far more deeply than it affects me or you if you're not Ukrainian because they still identify with their people. Nehemiah still identifies with the Jews, even though he's grown up in Persia his entire life. He worships the Jewish God, not their gods. And so he wants to know, how are our people, what is our city like? Now, you'd think Hananiah might say, oh, it's going great. The altar has been rebuilt, as we learn in Ezra chapter 2. Oh, and, and the, the temple has been rebuilt, as we learn in Ezra 3. But no, that's not the report he brings back. He looks at Nehemiah and says, The walls are torn down, and the gates are burned, and our people are living unprotected and in shame. And in verse 4, we see Nehemiah basically have a complete breakdown. Now, if we heard, like, our hometown had a tornado come through, uh, yeah, we'd probably feel devastated. But would you go and mourn and fast for days? Pro probably not. We like our food too much. We like our time too much. And yet he is so connected in his heart and mind with the Jewish people 
that this absolutely, completely wrecks him. Now, is that because he's unstable? No. We are going to study through the book of Nehemiah. We're going to see this man is a great leader. He is rock solid. No, you see, he's so heartbroken because the walls of a city, to have them torn down would be to like have your king running around naked. It would be an absolute and complete embarrassment. See, back in Nehemiah's day, many people believed that a certain god was over a certain geographical region. And so therefore, if one people group came in and invaded and won, it meant that our god is more powerful than your god. So for Jerusalem to have its walls knocked in, for them people to be hauled off in exile, it means that the Jewish god's pretty puny. He's pretty weak. Pretty pathetic. So for Nehemiah, to hear that the walls are torn down, it's not really about walls. It's about the people are unprotected and the reputation of God is being laughed at and mocked. That is why we see Nehemiah's response is prayer. As soon as he hears, as soon as he finds this out, we see him turn to God. So I want to study Nehemiah's prayer. <coughs> Excuse me. Nehemiah's prayer kind of follows the Acts model. Some of you are familiar with the Acts model of prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Now, as we're going to see here in just a little bit, he skips thanksgiving and actually substitutes something else in, and we're going to discover what that is. But this is a great model for prayer, so listen in if you want to grow in prayer. The first thing we see him do is adoration, verse 5. And I said, O oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, do you think he's just trying to like butter God up? It's like flatter God. Like if you say really nice things about God, maybe he'll be more likely to answer your prayer. No. no. This is Nehemiah reminding himself, my God is not weak even though walls are torn down. My God is not pathetic, even though the gates are burned. My God, the God, is the God of heaven, the creator of all things, and he is powerful, and he is good, and he is just, and he's loving and merciful. He's reminding himself, this is who I'm talking to and praying to. So many times when we pray, we tend to just launch right into our request. Our hearts are troubled. Oh, God, would you please give me this job? God, would you please help me with this financial crisis? God, would you please fix this relationship? And, and I think it's okay to just bring those to God. But let me encourage you, sometimes just stop and adore God. Sometimes just remind yourself of who it is you're actually talking to. This is the creator of the universe. The one who created you and put his image in you. And even though you sinned, Jesus died for you so your sin could be forgiven and you could come into a relationship with God. And he delights to have you come. Spend just a moment delighting in him, adoring him. But what you notice in Nehemiah's prayer is he does not spend a lot of time in adoration. He very quickly gets to the sea, to confession. Verse 6. Let your ear, O God, be attentive and your eyes open. To hear the prayer of your servant, so he's talking about himself, 
to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. If you think about it, if you begin your prayer in adoration and you take this time to just really consider who it is you're talking to, you start realizing just how holy and awesome he is and how unholy and unawesome you are. And so it leads you to confession, to confess these sins to this holy God. Don't be scared of him. He wants you there, and yet be in awe of him. Because he could punish you for your sin, but he loves you so much that he took the punishment from you and took it upon himself through Jesus. So we confess our sin. But what I want you to notice is Nehemiah did not just confess his own sin. He confesses the sins of his family and the sins of his people. I'll, I'll be honest, I, I cannot remember the last time I confessed the sins of my family. I, I, I don't know when, I think I have, but I, I can't remember the time that I like, confessed the sins of us as a church. I, I, I don't know, I, I'm sure I have or been a part of something, but I, I don't really recall ever praying and confessing the sins of our nation. And yet he does. He takes this time because he realizes this is more than just him. He's connected to something far bigger than himself. And he identifies with it. He doesn't try to say, oh, well, those people. No, he's like, I am one of those people. And he confesses his sin. Now, in the Acts model of prayer, when you confess your sin and you realize that God loves you so much, he's forgiven you of that sin, it should naturally lead you into thanksgiving. But for Nehemiah, something else is stirring in his heart. And so instead of thanksgiving, what we see him do is remembrance. Pick it up in verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There were numerous times in what, what Christians call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, supposedly written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the last three of those, numerous times, God warns the people through Moses, if you wander away from me, I'm going to discipline you. And if you continue to wander away and ignore my discipline, eventually I will bring a people in and they will take you into exile. I mean, we're talking like a couple thousand of years before the Babylonian exile ever happened, and yet God warns them. But if you will come to me with your heart, give me all of you, everything and nothing less, and you will be my people, I will make you prosper, we will change the world. Now, do you think Nehemiah needs to tell God because like, God's really forgetful? Oh, yeah, I did write that. Thank you, Nehemiah. No, Nehemiah is at this place of desperation. 
He's like, God, this is what you said. You said if we wander away, we'd go into exile. And sure enough, we've been in exile now for 70 years. But God, you said if we return to you, you would restore us. You would gather us back. And Nehemiah believes it's starting to happen. He believes it's God who moved Cyrus to allow Zerubbabel and Jeshua to take a group of people and reestablish the temple. He believes it was God who had, had Cyrus send Ezra to go and begin to reestablish the practices of the Jewish people. But he knows, God, it's not done. If the walls are torn down, then the people are unprotected, and your fame, your reputation is in the gutter. And so, God, I just remind you, not because you need the reminder, but just to say, would you finish it? Would you finish the restoration? Because our hearts are returning to you. And then that leads him to the very last thing, to supplication. The word supplication does not just simply mean asking God to supply you what you need. That's, that's definitely part of it. But it, it, hidden inside this word supplication is this idea of humbleness. Almost like this idea of desperation to the point of begging. When you are entering into supplication, you are pleading, God, I can't do this. I need you. You're the only one powerful enough to do this. And that's what we see Nehemiah do. Skip down to verse 11. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Again, talking about himself. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant, to me, today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. As Nehemiah is closing the prayer, he's basically saying, God, I need you to hear me. I'm desperate. I'm heartbroken, so please listen to my prayer. But not just my prayer. Listen to the prayers of all your people who follow you and love you. We need you, God. But then I want you to notice how he ends it. He says, and give success to your servant today. And maybe you're thinking, oh, that, that's good advice. Hey, all right, so God, tomorrow's Monday. I'm going back to work. Give me success. Okay, that, that's fine, but that's not what Nehemiah is praying here. What, what is he wanting success in? It's the very last phrase. And grant him, meaning himself, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. This man is the king. You see, Nehemiah, as soon as he heard the words from Hanani, just knew. He knew I need to go help rebuild the walls. And yet he knows I can't just do it. Like he doesn't have the resources. Where's where he going to get the stone, the lumber, to help rebuild the walls and gates? He also doesn't have the authority. Right? He shows up in Jerusalem. People are going to kind of look at him and go, who are you? Well, I'm the cupbearer to the king. So? Oh, by the way, I, I skipped that part. A cupbearer was a very important position in, in the kingdom. I used to think that a cupbearer was simply like a, a butler. You know, they, they test the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. They live, so okay, here you go, king. And that was their whole job. Now, it turns out that cupbearers were very, very important. You see, they had to be so trustworthy to, you know, that they wouldn't poison the king that they ended up becoming confidants to kings. In fact, some uh, um, cupbearers became CFOs, like chief financial officers. Others became almost like the assistant king. Like when, when the son wasn't ready to assume the kingdom, they, they kind of filled in. 
It was a very important, prominent position, sometimes becoming second in command. We don't know if Nehemiah was quite like that, but he had to be very trusted. He was a man of integrity. And so he's not going to just up and leave his job. He's going to fulfill what he needs to do. But he also recognizes the authority of the king. And the previous king had said, stop building the walls. So he can't just show up and say, you know what? Screw that king. Let's try it. No, he needs favor with the current king. But he realizes, who am I to just walk in and go, all right, king, here's what I want. No, he needs God to be at work, God to move. So he's saying, God, would you give me success? Only you can move the hearts of this king. And so I come to you asking you, may you make it happen because I know what I need to do. Now, you might think it's at this point in the sermon where we shifted over to Riverwood and we say, so therefore, we just know that God has called us to buy this building. So give us your money. The thing is, we don't just know. There, there was never a moment where our elders on Wednesday morning when we gathered to pray for our, our Riverwood family, there was never a moment where suddenly God just boomed in the office by the building. When we had our Riverwood partners gathering, there was never a moment where the Spirit just swept through here and we all went, oh, where to buy this place? No. Because you see, it's not about the building. Nehemiah cared about the walls being raised, not because he really likes walls. He wanted the walls raised to protect his people who were living in the city and to help reestablish the reputation of his God. Same for us. This capital campaign we're entering into is not really just about a building. The concern, the burden, the vision that is on our heart is you and the people that we are called to love and reach and bless. That's why we've intentionally called this capital campaign Building Lives. Because we need the reminder, this is not about a building. This is about helping people find Jesus and follow him. You realize this mission is not unique to Riverwood. Like, this is the mission that every church has or should have. This is what it's about. And you can actually accomplish this mission without a building. There are entire church movements that are accomplishing this mission without owning a lick of real estate. Now, some of them, it's because they're in countries where Christianity is banned. So they have to meet secretly in houses, in businesses. But there are also some church movements that they're trying to reach the de-churched, people who've been really turned off by this format of church. They're trying to reach people who have zero interest in ever entering a building and attending something like this. And so they use homes, they use businesses, they use community centers, they use whatever is around, their workplaces, their schools, simply to help people find Jesus and follow him. I did not plant a church to get into real estate. I could care less about buildings. I got into this to help people just like you Grow in a relationship with God. I want to see God work so deeply in you, he does something tremendous through you. When we lived in Kansas City, 
we got a glimpse of this. We would meet people that we would invite to be part of our church on Sunday morning, and they would say, you know, I'm not really into organized religion. But as soon as they found out we held a Bible study in our house, could, could I come? I mean, the food we served might have been, you know, a, a little bit of a tantalizing thing. But, but they were very open and curious spiritually. They wanted to study the Bible. They just didn't want to do it in this format. So when Leanne and I moved to Waverly, we brought some of those ideas with us. And we thought, let's start a Bible study. And when that Bible study becomes a second Bible study, then we might be ready to start something like this. But what happened is as we moved into town and we began to have conversations, we found the opposite of what we experienced in Kansas City. When we tried to invite people into our home for a Bible study, they'd look at us as if we were aliens, that we were strange, we were weird. What, like come to your home? Study the Bible? Nah. And then they'd say, but if you ever start a Sunday morning thing, I, I'd, I'd trick that out. Suddenly we started realizing that it wasn't going to work what we thought. We had to shift. We had to make a change. We needed to find a place and begin to hold this sort of a gathering because this fit the definition of church. And if we were going to reach the spiritually interested, we needed to have a format that they would feel comfortable coming to. And thus we began Easter of 2014. So for me, this is not about a building. This is about helping those people find Jesus and follow him and to grow into Christ-likeness, to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. It's just if we're going to see it accomplished, we think that the right thing, the wise thing, is to buy this place. It seems a wise decision financially. It also seems that this is how God is leading us. But I'm not telling you that God's ordained this. Because maybe we don't raise the 50000 What do we do then? I don't know. I believe God will lead us. I believe God will guide us. I, get, I believe he'll provide something for us. But right now, from where I stand, it seems the wise thing to do is for us to come together and attempt to buy this place so that we have this home base for where we can invite people to come to on Sunday mornings, a place that we can have discipleship. We've got a couple of growth groups that use this place. We've got other groups that use this place. We think we can do a lot more with this place. But it's also a place from where we can send you. We want to send you into your neighborhoods, into your workplaces, back to school, where you can go and make a difference. So, this is what we're attempting to do, to raise this money, because we believe that this will help us accomplish the mission that God has given us. And now, with that said, I also believe that studying Nehemiah is for you, personally. Because I think that if you are part of Riverwood, not just simply so you can help give your money and we can buy this place. I think you're part of Riverwood because God wants to do something in you so he can do something through you. Which means, if you have had a Nehemiah moment where you have sensed God saying, I want you to do this, then as your church family, we want to do everything we can to help you accomplish it. Because if that is from God, we want you to be obedient. 
I don't know what it is. Maybe God's calling you to be an overseas missionary. Maybe God's calling you to start a business. Maybe you need to start a ministry. Maybe you need to help Riverwood start a ministry. Maybe God's calling you to get involved in a specific place, whether it's here or or volunteer somewhere else. I, I don't know what it is. But if that burden, if that concern is sitting there on you, we want to help you. Now, it does not mean that, all right, tomorrow you're going to start. As we're going to see next week, there's sometimes a period of waiting. Sometimes the best thing you can do is when you have this sense from God, here's what I want you to do, you pray, you sit, you ponder, you seek advice, you, you figure out what's going to be needed. But if you have that, we want to unleash it because God wants to use it to help others. So what I want to do is I want to create space for us to just pray. So Sam, would you come on up? I'm going to invite Sam to just play. What we're going to do is we're going to just follow the model of Nehemiah's prayer. We're just going to spend a moment in adoration, then we'll move into confession, and then we're going to move into, and and this is for you to decide, whether you spend some time in thanksgiving or you need to move into remembrance. And maybe it's reminding yourself, this is what I was like, or this is what God did. God had called me at this point, and I, I wasn't obedient. So spend that time in prayer, and then we'll just close in supplication. So I'll, I'll lead us to the next section, and, and I'll spend some time praying. But for the most part, we're just going to spend time in silence and in prayer. So let's just spend some moments adoring God. Heavenly Father, if we each begin to speak out, trying to describe your majesty, your presence, your power, your goodness, it, it would take us to eternity. We would never be able to run out of words. You are that magnificent. You are that glorious. You are that big. So God, that's why we move into a time of confession. Because we confess We have sometimes shrunk you in our minds. We haven't trusted you, the almighty God. We we have put you on the side. We've just tried to do it our own way. So hear us now, God, as we confess our sins to you. God, we not only confess our individual sins, our shortcomings, our mistakes, but God, we also just confess as a church that we sometimes have just gotten caught up in the day-to-day, the week-to-week, just going through the motions, planning some songs, preaching a sermon, of us coming together and maybe 
contributing into the offering or serving in, in kids or uh, food. But God, I believe that you started this church to be a blessing to the world. And so God, for the moments that we've become too inward focused to forgive us, for the times we've doubted your provision, forgive us. For the times we've had doubts about others in our church family, forgive us. Heavenly Father, we live in a very broken and hurting world. Some of us feel that very, very closely. So God, we ask for you to heal us individually so that you might also use us to help bring healing to those around us. God, as we confess these sins to you, we are so grateful for Jesus. Jesus, you left your throne in heaven. You set aside all of the, the rights you had as God to take on human flesh. You became obedient even to death where you died upon a cross even though you had done nothing wrong. You, Jesus, are the only sinless person to have ever lived, and yet you went and died such a horrific death. But God, I believe that you didn't just do that to be an example to us. That you, Jesus, chose to do that, to die in our place. And so that is why we say thank you. So God, hear us now as we say thank you for what you've done through Jesus, for the blessings you've put in our lives. But God, also, as we remember, as we remember the things you've already done, the things that you've already said, whether in your scriptures or to our hearts. So God, hear us now as we thank you and remember. Father, while we know mentally that you have put your image in us, that you have given us talents, you've given us gifts, you've given us strengths, you've put so much in us, and there's so much good that we can do. And yet, God, when we are honest before you, we also see where we fall so short. That's why we, we come to you in supplication. We lay these things before you because we realize we can't do it on our own. That there are these things you've put in our lives that we cannot fix. We don't possess the knowledge. We don't possess the power. We don't possess the resources. So that is why, God, we come to you asking for your favor, that you would move things so that these things might be done. So God, hear us now as we bring our supplications, our pleadings to you. Heavenly Father, even though in just a moment I'll say amen and close this prayer, I pray you would continue to move the hearts of these people, that they would continue in prayer. 
I pray for the person that may not know you. They may not exactly know where their standing is with you. I pray they'd realize that you love them. You created them. And you want to do something great in them. And the first thing you ask them to do is to give themselves to you. Everything and nothing less. And as they confess their sin, as they acknowledge you as Lord, would you um, embed your Holy Spirit into them? Would you empower them? And would you begin this process of now making them to be more like Jesus? God, I pray for all of us that corporately we would be like Jesus and individually we'd be like Christ. That we would be like Christ in our homes, at, at work, in our neighborhoods, at, at the, on, on the baseball team, on, 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 at school. That you would just do deep within us this great work of making us like Christ so we can go and be that blessing. God, burden us with this. May this be our concern. May this be our vision. May this be the dream to see you do great things in the lives of other people. So God, open our eyes to those around us, but also open our eyes to what you are already doing in us. So Father, help us just to continue to surrender day by day, all of our lives to you for your glory for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We want to continue in this atmosphere of prayer by celebrating communion. If you are a first-time guest with us at Riverwood, we celebrate what uh, we consider open communion, meaning that this table is open to you on just one condition. This table, these elements, are all about Jesus. Jesus died on a cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you have put your faith into that story, then these elements are for you. And so we invite you to come. Anytime during the song, you can get up, get the elements. It's just a, a self-contained cup. By the way, I need to apologize to everyone. I found out that some of you don't know that these are actually easy to open. If you just push the little tab down and break it, things fold back really easily. I apologize that you've been fighting these things for weeks. So hopefully this will be a better uh, day for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you think that everything I've been saying, you're just not sure, that's okay. I'm just going to ask that you just very respectfully not come to these elements. There's no need to try to impress anyone. No, no one here is going to be impressed that you went. These elements are about Jesus. And so if you're not sure that the whole Jesus story is true, then just don't come. Please listen to the words of the song. Spend some time in prayer. Ask God, if it's true, would you help me to realize it? But if you know it's true, if you know Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on human flesh to come and die upon the cross and rise again from the dead, come. And as you take these elements, may you adore him. May you continue to confess sin. May you thank him for what he's done. Would you just cast all of your cares and concerns upon him because he cares for you. So let us sing, let us pray, and let us take these elements in remembrance of him.